else. All right, so should we kick this thing off then, Brian? We should. I've got it all. Uh, I did the digital thing. I clicked the record button. <laughs> our worst, our worst fear, Rob, is that uh, we go through a whole uh, you know, episode of this, and then we find out that it recorded uh, not a single bit of it. And so far, we've been lucky. I know uh, you guys started this not too long ago, and all of a sudden, you got almost two dozen episodes. It's great. Yeah, we're trying to crank them out. The holidays are tough for us, but uh, we're 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 doing a good job trying to get uh, one out every week. We we've, we've, uh-huh. we've missed some, but. Sure. Uh, that's to be expected, right? Yeah, we all have, we have real sorry. jobs. I wasn't going to record and, and skip turkey. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to do it. I mean, that's you know. right. You, you have your priorities. Yeah. So. If anybody is actually seeing me in person, I, I don't miss a meal. So it's all right. <laughs> I'm not going to start now. Uh, yeah. No one's ever accused me of the same. So there you go. All right. Well, let's kick this off. Episode 22 of The Hot Isle. My name is Brent Piatti. And with me, I've got Brian Carpenter. All right, Brian. How was your Thanksgiving, buddy? Uh, well, we just talked about it. It was, it was fantastic. I got to eat my uh, my my pseudo my pseudo mother, my unofficial adoptive mother of my best friend from high school. She makes uh, noodles that go with the mashed potatoes and gravy. It's a very I think it's a German thing. I'm just going to go with the Midwestern German something or other. I don't care what it is or what its nationality. It's fantastic. Oh, lovely. And, uh, so yeah, I go eat the noodles and then I take a long nap. Well, yeah, na- I think nap is just, uh, it, it's uh, it's part of tradition, right? Yeah. So yeah, I had my mother in town, and she met the, the granddaughter for the first time, so that was nice. And I actually did a low-carb, if not carb-free Thanksgiving this year, so I had a cauliflower mashed potatoes. And sacrilege. <laughs> I know, but you got to try it. Yeah. You and it actually well, worked out well. You know what? You should, probably should have had a, a red Christmas cup from uh, Starbucks with that, you know, the anti, the un-Christmas cup. So, because you clearly are breaking all the rules. So let's do this thing. Let's, um, all right. let's talk. We've got a great guest today and we uh, do. let's, let's talk to him. Yeah, man. So, uh, the goal of the show today is to educate you on the different types of emerging flash technologies and then also how you can apply them and then the benefits of each. You know, if we think about how the prices have continued to drop a flash and then the densities continue to increase. Uh, I think the realities of of an all flash data center become more and more real. So our guest today, uh, I think, is uh, uh, very poised to talk specifically about the flash industry and and how how we're doing and moving towards the all flash data center. So with us, we have Rob Pegler, and he is the vice president of advanced storage at Micron. Hey, Rob, how are you doing today? Brad, I'm doing great. I, uh, I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I uh, really appreciate it and happy to chat about all things Flash with you. Great. And so uh, we, assume, we assume that Micron has a little bit to do with uh, increasing density of this Flash stuff as well as uh, we really appreciate <laughs> you guys also driving down the costs. Um, whether or not it hurts your profits, another story, right? Well, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you know, there, there certainly have been... Uh, declines in uh, NAND flash uh, over the years. And, and Micron, you know, is one of four manufacturers on the planet. There's only four of us that actually manufacture NAND. So, yeah, there's price decreases. We see demand going up, uh, especially in certain segments of the market. Uh, and, Brian, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the reality of the all-flash data center uh, is, you know, going to be here soon. I already know and work with some customers that have, have literally told me they've bought their last spinning disk, and uh, especially for storage. And then there's the whole area of non-volatile memory too, uh, which I think will change the way we compute. But uh, certainly, flash 
uh, is uh, continuing to go down in price in terms of dollars per gigabyte. But the better story on Flash yet, I think, uh, is the TCO story, something that you guys well know. And so um, as far as you guys are concerned, you know, there's a there's certainly a, a wide variety of, uh, I guess we can generalize and call it all Flash, but like you've mentioned, you know, uh, right. uh, whether it be memory or uh, what something that looks like disk-based flash or PCIe, um, do you guys tend to internally? Do you tend to categorize it up and and break it up into different major uh, components or sections? We do, and uh, there are a couple of ways that we would uh, categorize that uh, a flash taxonomy, if you like. So starting with you know the type of NAND, right? And most of the flash you see today is NAND. Uh, although there is the, the type of flash known as NOR flash, particularly useful in the embedded market. So in your automobile, for example, uh, there is probably NOR flash hiding in there. But for NAND, which is the vast majority of the market, so there are different types of NAND specifically centered around how many bits per cell are in use. Uh, when NAND started out, we were single level cell or SLC for short, uh, very fast material. Uh, although relatively expensive in a cost per gig basis. Uh, but uh, those were the first flash SSDs were made out of this material. We still make that at Micron uh, and continue to sell into markets which like the, the speed uh, of SLC flash. Uh, then uh, several years ago, we developed 2-bit per cell. The industry likes to call this MLC, multi-level, uh, but those are 2 bits per cell. Uh, this uh, drives down the cost, so the cost per bit uh, of making this stuff is, is less expensive because literally I've got uh, more states in the same cell. So MLC is very popular today. Most of the enterprise class SSDs that you see on the market are made out of MLC. Uh, and then there is the industry transition to TLC or triple level cells, so three bits per cell. Uh, and uh, TLC has started to make great inroads, especially in the, into the lower end of the market. So consumer SSDs, you know, for example, Micron uh, has the Crucial brand of SSDs. Not a lot of people know that, uh, but uh, Crucial is, you know, very popular consumer aftermarket uh, for your laptop or your notebook or whatnot. And uh, those will be starting to made out of triple level cell. Uh, NAND, and again, reducing the cost per bit, uh, making them denser all the while. So, you know, a denser footprint in the same space. Um, so that's where we are today with NAND. So single, uh, multiple, or MLC, and then TLC NAND. <clears throat> and then there is the application of the NAND. You know, SSDs, of course, very well known, uh, very well understood uh, as well, and the controllers and the firmware that goes with that. So that's becoming a relatively mature industry. Lots of folks are making SSDs, Micron included, of course. Uh, and then there are all sorts of people that are taking NAND and making modules out of it. So not in an SSD form factor, uh, but a custom form factor. Some of the, uh, some of the arrays are doing this uh, for NAND. And then there's also other applications which are using flash modules uh, in their designs, uh, again, anywhere from arrays to uh, certain types of uh, equipment and servers and whatnot that uses customized flash modules. So we, we participate uh, in that market as well, selling NAND to those folks who do that. So there's the type of NAND. That's one way to categorize it. And then the application, you know, is it being used as an SSD? Is it being used as a module? 
what are the workflows that that go through that NAND, and what are they, you know, end up storing in it? And so we're gonna we're gonna beat up this NAND thing quite a bit. It sounds like we don't get to talk much about NOR uh, unless you you can explain to me how my uh, my little uh, Toyota or whatever is using it. But um, <laughs> you know, as as the VP of Advanced Storage for Micron, um, right. what what exactly are you being? I guess what what are you tasked with? What's your what's your day to day? Um, you know, what are they expecting you to do and how do you, how do you get that check from them? You bet. So, uh, my role is twofold, Brian, at Micron. Uh, I was hired into what we call the storage business unit or SBU for short. That's actually one of four business units at Micron. Uh, we have compute network, which is mostly the DRAM business, but also other technologies, hybrid memory cube, autonomous processor, things like that. Uh, and then we have a mobile unit, which is dealing with both uh, volatile and non-volatile memory in the mobile space. So phones, uh, wearables uh, becoming very popular. Uh, so there is, of course, memory and storage in those, and we participate in that market. And then the embedded market, which is where the NOR comes in. So how you use it in your car, quick example. Uh, you know, your car is full of sensors. It's full of processors. I mean, it's a rolling data center by any other name. And NORFLASH has this interesting characteristic that I can execute instructions inside the NORFLASH. You can't do that with NAND. NAND is a block device, so you can't, you know, tie a processor to it and you have it used as actual memory to execute instructions out of. We call this execute in place or XIP for short. So NOR is a very handy thing in your car uh, and it can be designed to be very resilient to temperature as well. The extremes you might see under the hood, for example, where NAND is really not suitable for that type of application. So anyway, that's how you use uh, NOR flash in your car. Uh, but so my role twofold, I face the field, field generally meaning customers, partners. Uh, I have a seat on the board of directors of the SNIA, so I face the industry as well. <coughs> and Micron uh, is rapidly evolving into a company which is becoming much more known, generally speaking, uh, by the end user, by the consumer of this technology, uh, in addition to its traditional role of supplying uh, NAND and DRAM, of course, uh, to OEM uh, vendors as well. So we still do a lot of OEM business, but they, they wanted to hire me because of my enterprise storage background uh, and work in the SBU and be a field-facing executive you know, and then I do have some internal duties as well inside our business unit. So I help to oversee things like technology planning and roadmaps and, you know, what are we going to build for SSDs in the next two, three, four years? You know, what types of NAND should we be using? What types of markets are getting interested in all flash designs, be they data centers or some other application of the technology? So I have that kind of strategic planning role as well, you know, one of uh, three or four executives within the unit. Uh, I work for Darren Thomas, who is a well-known figure in the storage industry, ran storage at Compaq, ran storage at Dell for many years, uh, and then came to Micron uh, fairly recently to, to lead the SPU. So I have this wonderful hybrid job, uh, somewhat similar to jobs I've had in the past, as, as you well know, Brian. Uh, but uh, most of my role is facing the outside world. Uh, and not only explaining, but helping to take those requirements from that world, lots and lots of different types of customers, bring that back inside of Micron, uh, and then work with our, excuse me, R&D teams and our NAND design engineers to make sure that we're making the right type of flash for the right application. 
Thanks, Rob. So, so in addition to your day job, you did mention uh, that you are a director at the uh, SNI, SNIA. So right. you've only been there for about eight months. Um, was that a direct result of of your new role at Micron, or was it something that you were scoping out? How do you how do you get a role like that? Are you are you elected? <laughs> do you volunteer for it? Sure, I'll I'll be happy to explain that. So uh, in in my past, I, I I actually joined the SNIA board. Uh, back in mm, 2005 or six, uh, and I was working at Xylotech at, at the time. You know, you now know them as XIO Storage, uh, and I had that role. Really, number one, I volunteered for it. So you know, the SNIA is. Uh, we do have employees at the SNIA, but the board of directors is all coming from industry companies. Uh, you know, who pay dues to be a member. So it's very similar to other uh, industry standards organizations in that fashion. Uh, and I, you know, been working long enough in the industry. I, I like to joke about it. Uh, you know, I now quote my experience in hexadecimal. So I'm entering my 27th year uh, in base 16. So you guys can figure it out uh, how long I've been doing this. It's been a while, uh, but you know, gotten to a lot of great people in the industry. I mean, you guys well know there are so many good people in this industry, and yet at the same time, it's a fairly small world. Right, you tend to develop these relationships over the years. So I'd put enough time in the storage industry, <clears throat> and done enough work, you know, uh, authored tutorials and did things like that. And and uh, they they basically asked me, you know, are you interested in running uh, for a board of directors position? So the first way you typically get on the board is by appointment. There are a certain number of positions that are appointed, and then once you're appointed, you stand for election. Again, very similar to other industry standards bodies that, you you know, there are members elected uh, every two or three years, depending on the term. Uh, and so that's how I got on the board originally. So I served on the board for four or five years, including being the treasurer of the organization. And then in May of 11, I joined EMC specifically uh, to be the CTO of Americas in the Isilon division, which was a wonderful job, and I loved every minute of it. Uh, but this, the SNIA rules stipulated that no two board members uh, could be from the same company. Uh, there was already a standing board member uh, from EMC, Wayne Adams, uh, on the SNIA board. So I stepped away from that uh, for a while. Still, you know, stayed fairly busy uh, and, and worked with them, but was not on the board by rule. Uh, but then when I joined Micron in February of 15. Uh, they asked me again, you know, would you like to come back and serve on the board now that you're a Micron employee? And I agreed and I started serving uh, in May. And then in October of next year, October of 16, I will stand for election. Okay. So that's how that works. And is it, Wayne, is, uh, is he still the chairman or is he the former chairman? Or So great question. The answer is he is now the chairman emeritus. Okay. What is, uh, I don't even know what that means. Day. So, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, being a, a university professor, you get the emeritus title after serving for many years, you know, with distinction. So they gave that Wayne that title. So he is still on the board, but uh, now Dave Dale from NetApp is uh, the chairman of the SNIA board. Cool. So does that mean that somebody from EMC is still not allowed to be on the board? Or That's that... correct. Okay. That's correct. So Wayne is a sitting member. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I had, had uh, remained at EMC or somebody else from EMC tried to get on that board, yep, that rule would apply, uh, and they could not serve. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot him an email right now and tell him he's a lame duck president. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So I'm sure they'll go over well. Anyways, 
um, so and by the way, you mentioned uh, X-IO. We did. Uh, I we did. I have fond memories of meeting you when you worked there, and uh, I've appreciated all the time we worked together. So oh, you bet. Likewise. Um, yeah. And since you know a lot about history, right? Base twenty. Uh, base. Base. Uh, what was it? Base two, and then base uh, sixteen. Twenty-seven base 16. years in base sixteen. I should pay right. closer attention. So base sixteen, twenty-seven years. Uh, we we're going to talk a little bit about tech history. You want to? You want to? You knock, bet. You want to knock this thing out, Brent? I'll do it, man. So uh, this week in tech history, in the week of December two thousand and one, the self-balancing battery-powered Segway is unveiled on Good Morning America. So you probably know these by mall cops, uh, airport police, and um, I guess your friendly local tour riding these things around. So the inventor, Dean came and basically said that these things were going to revolutionize the way that we travel and interact with the world around us. Uh, first of all, Rob, have you ever been on one of those things? You know, Brett, I have, and it's really fun. Uh, we did a Segway, and I'd never been one on before, but believe it or not, uh, so we, for my wife's mother, so my mother-in-law, for her 80th birthday, uh, we got her a Segway tour uh, of St. Louis, which is which is where we live. So uh, lo and behold, one Saturday morning, we all uh, went to downtown St. Louis and uh, uh, assembled in a parking lot of a Courtyard Marriott, believe it or not, and uh, with the Segway tour operators, and they taught us how to ride in the parking lot. It didn't actually take that long to to figure it out. And then we did the tour of downtown St. Louis. So, you know, here's 80 year old Dolores on her Segway and we're <laughs> following along and we had a great time. I have to tell you. So yes, I have been on a Segway and it's a lot of fun. Oh, well, good. So, uh, in your world, you've actually, you know, you've participated in it, but, um, since then, what do you, what do you think that the, the market for that or the appetite is for something like that? Boy, that's a, <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I'll give you the qualified I don't know uh, for that. You know, they're, uh, they're interesting devices, you know, vehicles. And I think at one time, you know, they thought about people segueing around, you know, in a metropolitan area, everybody on their own segway. Really never kind of, you know, didn't, didn't happen that way. And now, as you said, you know, you might see them in a mall. You might see them on an air, in an airport. Uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm in airports a lot, so I, I see these guys. But, uh, yeah, outside of that, uh, not too much application uh, for a Segway. I think yeah, that, you, Go ahead, Brent. It, it's a, it looks like it's been passed around a lot, right? Yeah. So it's been yeah. bought by multiple people. China just bought it. A Chinese company, Ninebot, just bought it uh, in August. But uh, I was going to say this is a fun fact, but it's not really fun. Segway was sold in 2009 to some British millionaire entrepreneur, and he died that same month. Or the same year because he rode his Segway off of a cliff. Yeah, don't oh. <laughs> don't, uh, don't drink in Segway. So wow. um, and you know it's interesting, right? So we you know we talk about all this stuff. I think you mentioned it earlier. You talked about using NOR in specific use cases and even doing calculations. Maybe Dean's mistake was not using pro NOR technology properly in his device. Right? He got the gyroscope. He nailed it. Um, but it's the other stuff that he didn't put in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's why, it, that's why it didn't become the world changer that he thought it was. Um, so, you know, I'm, gonna cheap, I'm also going to choose a cheap segue. And um, we're going to talk about world nice. changers, but we're going to talk about data center world changers. Um, so you brought up NAND. Uh, you've taught us about NOR. Um, and it, it sounds like, you know, code for something. But let's, let's go a little further into that. Um, sure. 
so NAND is kind of, you've, you've mentioned all these things and this is pretty, pretty consumable, right? We see, you know, TLC coming out in all flash arrays. Uh, yep. I know, I know Compellent has uh, three tiers using SLC, MLC, and TLC, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is not a band. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of really interesting use cases for this stuff, but frankly, this is the stuff that has become a bit commoditized. You mentioned roadmaps. So I want to, you know, I want to go a little further. Uh, okay. and you know, I want to talk about some of this other stuff. Um, the things, so first of all, you mentioned that there are four companies that do, that make their own flash. Uh, That's right. you said you're one of them. Who are the other three? Right. So the other three are in no, in no particular order, Samsung, uh, SK Hynix, uh, you know, both Korean companies and then Toshiba, a Japanese company. And we are, Micron is the only American uh, company for what it's worth. That's, uh, that manufactures NAND. So there's only four manufacturers on the planet. Uh, and then if you go to DRAM, you know, volatile memory, there's actually only three. So Samsung, Hynix, Micron, uh, and only two that actually do uh, that technology in the enterprise, you know, so for an enterprise array, for an enterprise server, that would be us and Samsung. And then we're the only American-based company that's, that's doing any of that. So that's, that's the layout. There's not a lot of players uh, that actually make NAND. Again, it's, it's consolidated over the years, somewhat similar to the rotating drive market, essentially now dominated by Western Digital and Seagate. So essentially two players, uh, but, uh, so yeah, there are only four, four manufacturers of NAND, uh, on the planet. And so, uh, th- this is really interesting to me because I, you kind of broke something that I didn't know about you guys. There was a big announcement around, um, 3d cross point, which right. is not the same as 3d NAND. Um, Correct. and well, I'm learning, you know, we're learning all this through this. Um, but you guys and Intel announced 3d cross point. I just assumed they made the chips or, you know, you designed them or they designed them and you made the chips. So, you know, tell us a little bit about how that breaks down. How does that relationship break down? I will. So, um, and you know, without revealing anything NDA, of course, so Intel and Micron, uh, have had a joint venture together for several years. It's called the IMFT Intel Micron flash technologies. Uh, again, a joint venture set up quite a while ago. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fruits of that joint venture are really twofold. Uh, as you mentioned, Brian, the first announcement, and this was back, uh, in March of this year. So not quite a year ago, uh, Intel and Micron jointly announced the existence of 3d NAND. Uh, there are some other folks that call it vertical NAND, but you can call it that if you like, but 3d NAND, uh, that was, you know, co-designed and is now being produced. Uh, by the joint venture, specifically in the fab at Le- in Lehigh, Utah, which is a, uh, a fab that uh, uh, is part of that joint venture. And material coming out of that fab uh, is used by both Intel and Micron, according to the terms of the JV. So that's 3D NAND. That's, that's how that started out. Now, what you're referring to, Brian, is 3D Crosspoint, which is a completely different form of non-volatile memory. So it's not DRAM and it's not NAND. It's a completely different form. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. But that was also a product, uh, you know, design, develop, manufacture uh, of the joint venture between Intel and Micron. Uh, and you're, you know, you've probably heard a lot in the industry, uh, both in the, you know, the trade press and then also from 
not just the vendors, but the potential consumers of this, especially uh, people that consume, you know, Intel designs. Uh, and that is, again, that was announced, oh, I want to say three or four months ago uh, at a joint press conference with, with Intel and Micron. So, yeah, they're, they're two very different technologies, but both are the fruits of this joint venture that Micron is, and Intel have had for, for several years now. So, so it's very interesting. So if we you stack these up before, uh, SLC, MLC, right. TLC, and you talked about an evolution of density and cost and a couple other things. Does, yep. does So TLC is technically enabled by 3D NAND. Is that correct? Well, not quite. You're, okay. You're halfway, you're halfway there. Take, so me, take there, me to the other half then. You bet. So there are really two forms of how you manufacture this stuff. You know, given that it's TLC, so the base design is three bits per cell, I can design it into a planar or what we call a 2D, you know, wafer, and then the wafers are cut into dies. Uh, and uh, so that's a planar technology. So one layer, right? So you have NAND cells and they're basically addressable, you know, in coordinate terms on an X and Y plane. So it's a flat two-dimensional uh, array uh, of cells. Now, 3D NAND, on the other hand, is adding literally that third dimension. So now I'm layering the NAND uh, and it's not just stacked dies together. We've been doing stacked dies for density purposes for a long time. This is actually cells in three-dimensional form that have a Z coordinate as well. So Micron has developed, again, with this joint venture with Intel, we have developed a 32-layer 3D NAND design using both M MLC 3D NAND, so two bits per cell in a 3D topology, and then also a TLC NAND, three bits per cell, also in a three-dimensional uh, topology. So uh, there is planar NAND, which is very common. Again, been, been around for years and years and years, uh, found in all sorts of SSDs today. Uh, and then, as you said, the 3D NAND is now being introduced. Again, Samsung was first to market with what they call vertical NAND. Uh, Intel and Micron jointly announced it. You'll start to see products come out actually quite shortly now without revealing anything NDA. You're going to see products in 2016 based on 3D NAND, uh, both in MLC form and in TLC form. Uh, so uh, look, you know, look for those soon. But uh, that's essentially the difference between 2D and 3D NAND. It's, it's how they're manufactured. So is it literally one layer or planar? Uh, or do we manufacture it in multiple layers uh, with something we call through silicon vias, which are literally connections between these layers, electrically speaking. So this acts as one very large cell, uh, and it happens to be, again, uh, manufactured in three dimensions. Well, I think we need to do a hot aisle whiteboard session. <laughs> yeah, there you well, this, go. Is, this is audio only. Luckily, I got that. And I, I, think, we, <laughs> I think what he taught me is that the, the 3D function is while works on MLC and TLC, enables right. additional densities in the same form. You factor. got it. Bingo. Boom. Well, hopefully, hopefully this 3D NAND is better than 3D movies when they first came no, out. They're horrible. Oh. I have they a three, stunk. I've watched one 3D movie on my 3D projector, and that's just to say I did. Go ahead. Fortunately, we're very happy with this technology. It does not require you to wear funky glasses to use it. Uh, unlike the three <laughs> the 3D movies of years past, so no, I'm with you. I literally tried to watch a 3D movie and I almost got sick. It was just 
I, I couldn't take it. So uh, that was the end of three-dimensional movies for me. <laughs> so, Rob, maybe I missed this, but um, after 3D NAND, uh, yep. the next product in line is Crosspoint, or is there something in between? Well, no. So the, the, you, you've had them in, you got them in correct order, you know, in the year 2015. So back in March, we announced 3D NAND, again, which is a NAND-based technology, either MLC or TLC. Uh, and then, again, a few months ago, uh, we jointly announced 3D Crosspoint, which is non-volatile. It has some really interesting characteristics, but it's not DRAM and it's not NAND. It is literally something new. Uh, I call it, you know, trying to solve the Goldilocks problem, right? You know, get the technology just right, because and here's why. Um, now, first things first, 3D Crosspoint is non-volatile. So it remembers, you know, literally remembers what you wrote to it, even though uh, power is not applied. This is unlike DRAM, of, of which we know, of course, uh, you know, the, the microsecond you take power away, you, you lose data. Uh, NAND, of course, has been non-volatile for years and years and years. So 3D crosspoint is non-volatile, but it also can be addressed as both memory, so byte-level addressing, which is something you cannot do with NAND. NAND is a block level, you know, blocks and pages. So I can't address it, you know, at byte, you know, 3-2 Charlie. I just can't do that. It's not designed to do that. Uh, so it's like DRAM. Crosspoint is like DRAM in that regard, and that's byte addressable. Clearly, if you look at <coughs> some of the upcoming Intel architectures, uh, Perley and Skylake, for example, you can see the role that, that Crosspoint will play in terms of a directly addressable, so this is on the memory bus, right, on a DDR4 bus, uh, directly addressable at a byte level. It's designed to do that. But the intriguing thing is it can also be addressed at a block level like NAND so I can use it for storage, right? So there is, there is the memory application of Crosspoint and there is the storage application of Crosspoint. So you can envision, for example, and Intel has already demonstrated this, uh, they put together an SSD made out of Crosspoint. So no NAND inside uh, but using 3D Crosspoint as the non-volatile, you know, persistent media. Uh, and they trotted this out at IDF, for example. They made an SSD, uh, you know, the demo of it uh, specifically aimed at the high-end gaming market, which, you know, people want to pay for very low latencies in that market so they can play their games more realistically and at a faster pace. Uh, and Intel claims, you know, a 5 to 7x improvement in performance. So this is not percent, right? This is 5 to 7x over the equivalently sized NAND-based SSD. So again, 3D, or excuse me, a 3D Crosspoint, again, it is a three-dimensional topology, much like 3D NAND. So there are multiple layers. Uh, turns out that the first iteration of this is two layers, not one, but two. So I've got address in the, in the, in the Z dimension. Uh, and it will continue to be a 3D you know, memory technology for, you know, years and years and years to come. Because uh, quite literally, that's really the only way to get denser uh, instead of trying to, you know, have these chips either be larger or have the cell size, you know, the, the, the lithography very, very small, which is very difficult. And by the way, we're almost at the end of the road for 2D NAND. That's one of the reasons why we developed 3D, because <coughs> we're at 16 nanometers now with 2D NAND. And you can't get too much smaller than that. The physics of how NAND works literally starts to break down once you approach 10 nanometers. So the only way to get denser parts is to grow in the vertical dimension. So 3D Crosspoint is a 3D technology from the get-go 
uh, with multiple layers involved. But again, its role is very interesting. It is the in-between technology. So, you know, it's not as fast as DRAM, but it is significantly faster than NAND, as Intel demonstrated at IDF. Uh, and then its cost is also in-between DRAM and NAND, but it has this very interesting you know, attribute is that it's non-volatile. So it is like NAND in that regard. So you can think of it, you know, if you like, uh, as like DRAM addressable on a memory bus, but it is non-volatile. It remembers state and I can still address it from a processor uh, over the DDR bus and fetch data in and out just like I would do on a DRAM bus. So uh, in, in doing research uh, you know, for the podcast, Yep, I saw somebody called NV Dims, non-volatile sure. dim technology. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that's what I'm I'm hearing you talk about, but maybe not. Is that completely different? Well, not completely. So you're you're kind of barking up the right tree there. So an NV Dim is really kind of what it says. It's non-volatile, so it's non-volatile memory, and it's found on a dim form factor. So again, very common. Uh, by the way, before DIMMs, there were SIMs, so single inline memory modules instead of double inline in, in memory modules. But anyway, a bit of history there for you. Uh, so NVDIMMs really come in two flavors. Uh, the first NVDIMM on the market was effectively an SSD on a DIMM. So it had controller, it had firmware, it was made of all NAND, uh, and yet you could place it inside a server in a socket that, you know, you would put DRAM DIMMs in, uh, but yet you are, had this non-volatile DIMM, uh, and that, that's been around for a few years now. Not, you know, to be fair, not terribly popular. Uh, it involves changing the BIOS uh, on your machines. It involves kernel-level changes because now you've got literally two different areas of memory. Uh, that the processor has to figure out, you know, which page is volatile, which page is non-volatile, all that. <clears throat> and the other thing is, although they can sit, uh, the first-generation NVDIMMs can sit on a DDR bus, just like DRAM can, uh, they're very much slower than a DRAM DIMM, as you can, you know, understand. So this is NAND trying to be addressed as memory, and, it's, and again, it's got a controller and firmware on it. So that was the first-generation NVDIMMs. Micron did not participate in that. We have now uh, announced literally just about, you know, not even a month ago yet um, at SC15, the showdown in Austin. So you've done your homework correctly. And NVDIMMs now, this is the next generation of NVDIMMs. And what Micron has done is we have an NVDIMM now, which is effectively part DRAM and part NAND, all on a single DIMM. And it also has battery protection with the DIMM in the form of a bank of ultra capacitors. So quite literally, why we did this is not only can you get, you know, the same DRAM speed uh, as regular DRAM because the addressable part of the NVDIMM is DRAM after all. So it acts like DRAM because it is. The advantage of NVDIMM is that if power fails on your server, those ultra capacitors kick in and they immediately start draining the DRAM into the NAND on the DIMM and thus preserving it or making it persistent. So all that uh, information that you stored in DRAM that you hope that you don't lose because of a power failure and you have to design your operating system and and software around that, uh, now that gets flushed to NAND on power loss. uh, And then when the server, you know, reinitializes, power comes back on, 
The reverse happens, so all that NAND is now read back into DRAM exactly the way it was, you know, the, the split second that the power went out. Uh, and I've got DRAM now restored, uh, and my, you know, literally the operating system and the programs can carry on from where they left off. So this is, you know, requires some software enabling to go with it because the OSs of today, this is what I was alluding to, Brian, the OSs of today have to understand that this capability is now inside their servers should they elect to do, do this with NVDIMMs. Now, you can use NVDIMMs just like you use normal DRAM uh, and not have to worry about that. But if you want to take advantage of the persistence uh, and, you know, in your code or in your operating system or in your hypervisor, uh, for example, and literally reboot, you know, pick up from where you left off, not have to start all the processes over again, because now I've got persistent DRAM, uh, even on power loss. So that gets really interesting. So those are NVDIMMs. Uh, and again, they're a different form uh, of non-volatile memory because they're they're hybrid, if you like. They're part DRAM and part NAND. So who, I, I mean, it sounds like you may have a technology partner already. Do you already have somebody who has um, essentially written that portion into the kernel um, to be able to help with uh, essentially knowing that the memory was persistent in a power failure? Yeah, so there, there are actually some interesting uh, efforts going on within the Linux community to deal with persistent memory. Uh, and there's a whole library of routines uh, formerly known as PMEM, or persistent memory for short, uh, that are now out, out on Git repositories and people are bringing these down and, and writing code that takes advantage of the fact that they know this memory can be persistent, uh, which, by the way, will be also used uh, when Crosspoint makes its way into servers because it, it literally is non-volatile from the get-go. Uh, so, yeah, there's a number of efforts going on. Uh, again, uh, there are some at the BIOS level, although you don't have to do BIOS changes to do this. There are already motherboard manufacturers which have certified these NVDIMs uh, for use in their servers. Uh, but if you can, you know, inside the kernel, and again, this is why the, the Linux kernel people and the PMAM effort is, is so interesting, uh, that if you can understand that DRAM is now persisted in all cases, right, even on power loss, uh, then you can do some pretty interesting things with your structures and memory, uh, especially for things like file systems for trying to keep track of metadata uh, in computations, things like that. You know, the idea of checkpointing uh, in certain codes, especially in HPC applications. They like to write their, you know, contents of DRAM out to disk every now and then, you know, just in case, right? Well, now, if that happens automatically, you know, through the power loss mechanism, uh, and now I can restore memory as it was uh, at that instant. Uh, then programs can take it, start to take advantage of that. So yeah, there is some software enablement uh, that will go on. But this is, you know, you are seeing now the start of something interesting uh, at the kernel and at the OS and hypervisor level, uh, understanding the fact that they now have persistent memory on the memory bus. And I don't have to flush everything, you know, down to persistent storage uh, through a SCSI interface, for example. So this it gets very interesting in a big hurry. Okay, Rob. So um, when we were at Dell World, we saw, I believe it was yep. a Samsung two and a half inch form factor SSD <laughs> that was like 16 terabytes. I think Samsung had it. Um, so kind of along that same vein, let's talk about the densities of, of all the things we talked about. So if we look sure. at SLC, MLC, TLC... And yep. then 3D NAND, what are, 
What are the varying densities? Let's just talk <clears throat> the biggest of each of those each of those technologies. You bet. So be happy to. So again, in the NAND world, uh, with the three uh, different you know cell level designs, single, multiple, triple. Uh, you get varying densities, you know, per chip, and then you can, you know, do the math on how many chips or die, as we call them, you can put into a two and a half inch drive. So what Samsung announced is, you know, the and this is with 3D TLC, by the way. So this is the densest NAND part or the densest one that Samsung has. Uh, they could construct a two and a half inch, 15 millimeter, you know, high case uh, with uh, 16 terabytes of addressable NAND. So they made that announcement. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, if you look at the Micron part, uh, which is yet to hit the market, but it, it will you know, quite soon, certainly within 2016, um, that part uh, that we manufacture is actually in the ratio of three to two more dense. So our part is a 384 gigabit part. So in that you know, fairly small area, you know, maybe, you know, roughly a centimeter on each side, maybe a little more plus or minus, you know, now I have 48 gigabytes of storage uh, of, you know, made out of 3D TLC NAND. So that's the highest of the high. Now, SLC drives commonly seen, again, been around since 2007, 8 timeframe. Uh, those are relatively small in size. So on the order of some hundreds of gigabytes, uh, that's about it. Uh, now, SLC, again, very, very fast, the fastest NAND, you know, technology that we've developed uh, and also relatively expensive. So the, the disk sizes tend to be smaller with SLC because of those factors. So you might see 100 gig, 200 gig, 400 gig SLC drives. Those are fairly common. MLC NAND, so one, one level up, uh, two bits per cell. You might see, again, the same sizes. Uh, Micron has been doing things like 128, 256 gigabytes per drive, and now we're getting into the order of terabyte size, two terabytes, depends on the interface as well. So uh, Micron is, is now, uh, and with its uh, actually a joint development effort with Seagate, uh, has a one, two, or four terabyte planar MLC, so two bit per cell, uh, SAS SSD starting to hit the market. Uh, so four terabyte again. So that it's kind of, you know, you can think of it as an order of magnitude larger than what you would ordinarily see in an SLC drive. So that's with MLC. And then again, once we get to 3D MLC, those capacities could jump as well. Uh, and then there's TLC, which, which Brian mentioned, and there are some storage array vendors uh, which are beginning to use uh, uh, SSDs made of triple layer cells. So TLC SSDs uh, becoming actually more popular, again, because of the density. Uh, and those typically start uh, the smallest one of those you'd see might be half a terabyte, so 512 gig, uh, and then terabyte one, two, four are becoming very popular. Uh, one of the most popular uh, densities is, is either 960 or one terabyte uh, in TLC. That's a very popular size. Some people are moving to two terabytes now. And again, not so much for the space, but trying to reduce the cost per gigabyte uh, at acquisition of the drive. So. Uh, this is, you know, not uncommon in the industry. You see densities start to move up. Uh, as NAND densities get stronger and stronger, you'll see deeper and deeper drives. Again, you saw the Samsung announcement with 16 gigabytes. And I, I got to tell you, that's, that's an interesting uh, device, but it's really only tip of the iceberg. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would think not in, you know, in the not too distant future, you may see densities go well beyond that 
uh, for an individual SSD. Well, I and I don't math very well, um, but you said three to two, and they're at sixteen gig on their uh, sixteen terabytes, terabytes on their yeah terabytes right? whatever. Right. It's all the yep. same. Um, and uh, that is uh, on their VNAND or their vertical, you know, right, their 3D. Right. You said three to two. So I'm predicting 24 terabyte TLC 3D NAND micron drives. That's what you said to me. Well, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that as a, as a good officer of Micron, but uh, then that, the, math, the math does tend to work that way. Yeah, so I will print, <laughs> since you said you can't confirm or deny it, it's time to print it. I've learned that from uh, modern media. Uh, the other thing I heard you say, it's pretty interesting because you mentioned San, uh, Seagate. Uh, right. Sounds like, so you're back, you're back flirting with uh, some of your old uh, partners there from Zyotech days. Well, so, I'll, I'll tell you what, it's, you know, uh, and again, you know, Seagate, you know, the disk drive maker of, uh, of literally legendary status that have been doing this for decades, right? Uh, so uh, back uh, when Darren Thomas came on board, uh, we decided to have, it's not really a joint venture per se, but it's really a development agreement uh, between Seagate and us to produce, you know, a world-class SaaS interface SSD. And it turns out we've done exactly that. Uh, and also, it's, it's very good for both parties because, number one, uh, Micron gets access to Seagate engineers who know the SAS interface literally inside and out. I don't, I don't think there's a better group of, of engineers on the planet that know SAS like the Seagate guys do. Uh, but then the other part of it is that, you know, Micron, as one of the four suppliers of NAND in the world, uh, can supply Seagate with NAND. Uh, and on a very, very consistent basis. So uh, this is, again, this is a problem that uh, some of the SSD vendors always have. You know, where am I going to get my NAND? How am I going to, you know, get, get good, consistent supply? How am I going to deal with that? So the, uh, the agreement was reached with Seagate. And again, now we are starting to see, we're sampling those drives right now. We're starting to see the fruits of that labor. Uh, and that's why we went to Seagate, was specifically to get SAS controller and, and firmware technology on the market uh, from a world leader in SaaS technology. Uh, they Again, they know the interface better than anyone, I think. Uh, and yet they're using our NAND uh, and we're selling this drive. It's exactly the same drive being sold by Seagate and sold by Micron. And is that and is, is the problem that they're solving is the biggest problem that you guys see for that? Like, is that the interposer or is it at another layer where they're even more beneficial or uh, what problems are they most likely to be solving? Sure. So, you know, when you, when, you when you design an SSD, there are three fundamental components. Uh, there's the NAND itself, right, the, the basic, you know, persistent media. Uh, and then there is the, the controller of that NAND, so electrically interfacing it to the outside world. Uh, and then, of course, there is firmware to manage it all. So an SSD literally is, you can think of it as a little system by itself. Uh, it's got a controller, it's running an interface, and in, in our SAS drive case, it's running a dual port 12 gigabit SAS interface, so it's running two of those, uh, and you have to have firmware to manage that. This is, again, not unlike uh, the hard drive industry, where hard drives have had internal controllers and firmware for years and years and years to manage the media and to manage the outside world. So it's not really anything to do with the host, per se, where you might see an interposer, uh, up in a server or in an array controller, for example, uh, but this is down at the drive level. So we wanted access uh, to, you know, some really good controller and firmware technology. Uh, and this was kind of the classic, you know, make versus buy, right? So we decided to partner with Seagate. Uh, 
uh, to do this, again, specifically for SAS. Uh, now, we do our own controllers and firmware on other SSDs that we, that we have at Micron, uh, which is great. Uh, but for the SAS SSDs, we decided to partner up with Seagate, and uh, so far it's working out pretty well. Sounds like fun. Cool. So it we hit a, hit a use case for, for you know, SSDs in NAND. Um, what about something like you know, 3 Crosspoint and also NVDIM, sure. and then you know, what yep. else is there in the future? Yeah, so I think some of the interesting use cases, Brent, is uh, think about the way we do in-memory analytics right now. There are a number of approaches uh, to doing analytics in memory, and, and then there is the world of in-memory database, right, which kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, but I am seeing, and again, no surprise to you guys probably, uh, I'm seeing a very big interest from all sorts of different customers uh, in the running of analytics. So things like Spark, for example, have really ignited, I guess pun intended, but they have uh, a great interest uh, in trying to do as close to real-time analytics as possible. Uh, and the way you do that, of course, is number one, you structure your code to be parallel and asynchronous, and number two, you run as much in memory uh, as you possibly can. Uh, we think that's a great uh, use case, number one, for NVDIM because of the, of the characteristics of what happens when I lose power. I don't want to lose all my data uh, that I've worked so hard to get into memory. Uh, but number two, also for Crosspoint and then potentially in the future, other non-volatile memory technologies uh, where I can directly address the non-volatile space. I don't have to worry about flushing to disk. I don't have to worry about getting on a PCIe bus uh, just to store some data or retrieve some data. I'm literally writing memory now, so my application is in full control over what gets persisted and what doesn't. Uh, instead of having to call, you know, routines in a kernel and write data through a file system or a block interface or what have you. Uh, so those are some really interesting use cases. And the other thing is with potentially, especially with Crosspoint, uh, the potential for very large memory spaces, you know, much larger guys than we see today. You might see a server today with a terabyte or maybe terabyte and a half of DRAM. And again, that's great. Uh, blazingly fast, but... Let's be, fa let's be honest, relatively expensive, uh, you know, to have a terabyte or a terabyte and a half of DRAM in a given server. So instead of doing that, or potentially in addition to doing that, now I want a non-volatile memory space, not quite as fast as DRAM, but again, significantly faster than NAND, that I can address, say, tens of terabytes in a given server. And guess what? It's non-volatile, so I don't have to worry about persistence. So now this, you can think of it as a memory hierarchy, in addition to the storage tiering or storage hierarchy uh, that we've known and, you know, grew up with over the years. First, it was different kinds of rotating disk or maybe different RAID. Uh, now, Brian, as you mentioned, at least one array vendor is doing tiering just within flash devices, maybe three or potentially four levels of that. And now we have the advent of now memory hierarchy or memory tiering where there might be two, three, or potentially even four different areas of memory with different characteristics, all under the control of the application uh, and or the kernel or hypervisor that's running there. So in-memory analytics, I think, is a great use case uh, for some of these. And there are certainly others as well. Uh, financial services, oil and gas, you know, mean and entertainment, uh, retail analytics. There's all sorts of use cases that are, you know, literally coming up and lots of people are doing them. Uh, and then again, uh, you know, open source uh, community uh, tool sets like Spark 
uh, which are enabling a near real-time or as close to real-time as you can get uh, processing of these analytics uh, with all sorts of other tools in, in the Hadoop ecosystem to, to go with it. And since while we're on uh, futures here, um, you know, a couple of other ones that you've reminded me of here. Um, so the, the Crystal Ridge stuff that Intel is working on, is that also part of you guys's? Are you guys helping them with that as well for the joint venture? Um, I think it, it looks like it might be CR1 type memory or something to that effect. Are you familiar with that? Well, I am. And there's, to be fair, there's not a lot I can say about, you know, a particular technology that has, hasn't been announced. So I'll leave it at okay. that. And is, and if you do or don't know, and again, you, you're welcome to say no, uh, sure. it appeared that Diablo memory fits in that same CR1 space. Does that sound about accurate where they sound like they're about the same thing? If well, they're... you know, yeah, and uh, and I'm familiar with with what Diablo is doing. Again, they did kind of the first generation NV DIMMs, you know, SSD uh, on a DIMM, and now they're taking other approaches as well. Uh, and and again, I'm I'm not going to comment further than that. Yeah, I was, it was just interesting to me when you're talking about NV DIMM. It reminded me of what uh, Diablo looked like from mm -hmm. a from a a bit of a block, a bit of a memory, you know, DDR4 type experience. Um, and so I felt like it was in the same class and maybe just the next step. So it sounds like maybe it's a, something we should talk about in the future. Um, so let's go to something we could talk about now. Um, one of the things with this NAND, we keep talking about SSD and, mm -hmm. you know, use case. Frankly, um, although it, it's a different interface, uh, PCIe uh, and PCIe cards, while they may or may not be SSD, are yep. another form factor that's delivering NAND. Uh, and frankly, yet another type of density. Um, along with that comes the idea of PCI fabrics or even mm -hmm. SSD fabrics that you, I've seen on your site. So talk a little bit about what you guys are doing around PCIe fabrics, PCI SSD, stuff like that. You bet. So uh, I'll start with, uh, with the storage devices themselves. Uh, and again, we've been producing as part of Micron SBU uh, SSDs, which use the PCI Express interface, uh, we've had several on the market now for, for several years, actually, both for storage array OEMs and then also direct consumptions by uh, an end user or, uh, you know, a company that's putting together their own infrastructure, like a hyperscale company. So PCI Express, again, very well known, been around quite a while, uh, and kind of a natural medium for an SSD. Uh, because of its throughput and its expandability. Uh, you mentioned PCI fabric. Uh, we certainly work with companies that make fabric switches or fabric extenders, if you like, uh, for PCI Express. Uh, there are several companies who do so. Uh, there are also several companies that we work with that are looking at designs for arrays or you know, large persistent storage uh, units uh, that utilize PCIe fabric to extend out from a given server or a given PCIe root hub, uh, as the technology would have it, uh, and put many, many, many devices, you know, dozens, hundreds of devices out on a fabric, all accessible over PCI Express bus, uh, again, with a very well-known set of protocols. Uh, so we participated in that world at the SSD level for a long time. Again, we don't make fabric switches or fabric extenders. Other companies do that. Uh, and we go to great lengths, of course, to make sure our devices run uh, not only on a slot in a server, but also across uh, a fabric-attached uh, PCIe uh, topology as well. So PCIe world is still going very strong. Uh, you know, we have uh, Gen 3 devices coming out in various uh, 
uh, numbers of lanes, you know, four lane, eight lane uh, designs. Um, and then there's Gen 4, which is not yet out, but uh, will be pretty soon. So, you know, double the throughput per lane, uh, that type of thing. That's why it's an interesting technology. Uh, you can really take advantage of uh, some of the uh, use of PCIe when you get down to an individual, you know, workload in an individual server. Uh, and, you know, literally there are PCIe devices, ours included, uh, which are on the order of, you know, 750,000 IOPS, if you uh, consider an IOP to be a random 4K reader, right? Uh, especially reads, you know, very, very fast on NAND. Writes are not as fast on NAND as reads. Uh, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of IOPS uh, per individual di device sitting on a PCI Express bus. So it is not outside the realm of possibility to have a given server, you know, literally have the footprint that I can deliver a million and a half, two million IOPS uh, through this given server if I'm using PCI Express uh, and SSDs based on that technology. Now, there, then there's the whole world of NVMe or NVM Express, uh, which is a different kind of transport, still uses PCI Express as a baseline <coughs> uh, interconnect. Uh, but now the transport mechanism, the queuing mechanisms, again, you could probably do a whole podcast on NVM Express uh, just by itself. But this unlocks some of the parallelism that's inherent uh, in these SSDs, you know, with uh, because an SSD might have, you know, literally 32 channels in and out of the NAND, uh, and I want to take advantage of all of those all at the same time and literally try to saturate uh, the PCIe bus. So uh, NVMe is starting to take hold. Uh, again, you will see NVMe products here out shortly. Uh, from Micron that are storage devices, so NVMe-based SSDs. There are already some on the market uh, from uh, other companies as well. Uh, so uh, that's a whole new frontier. And then NVMe Fabric, again, extending that transport out over a PCI Express fabric uh, with multiple devices on either side. So uh, it gets interesting in a big hurry, I have to tell you. So I got a question for you. Uh, and Brian and I, you know, I'm a system engineer now. Brian was... You know, I don't know, a couple months ago, um, he moved on into, you know, his, his new glorious role. But uh, he still remembers this stuff. And, and I'm assuming oh, yeah. that you do, too, uh, obviously being in the, in the flash space and coming from EMC. But we use a rule of thumb, right, for SLC, for EMLC. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking like 2,500 to 3,500 IOPS per drive. But then you read articles about, like, for instance, your BX200 TLC one terabyte drive. Right. And it's getting 66,000 read IOPS for yep. 4K writes and 78,000 write IOPS for 4K writes. So I'm super confused. Uh, help, help me understand and see the light. Like, are, <laughs> are, are, are we ultra conservative in the way that we, we our rules of thumb for what we put in systems? Or, I mean, where am I missing it? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, so this is you have actually outlined the difference between using SSDs in servers, right, which a lot of people are either moving toward or already there, you know, the whole role of software-defined storage on a server-based architecture. Uh, you guys know that world with products like Scale.io, for example. Uh, so when you deploy an SSD in a server, you know, literally you can, you know, manipulate all the uh, potential for I.O., both the throughput uh, and uh, latency uh, that is, exists on that device. So you can exercise the device to its fullest. So that's inside a server. And again, how you interconnect the servers and how you put together storage 
you know, pools, if you like, uh, with software-defined storage across multiple servers, there's where some of your more conservative estimates come in because now I'm dealing with not just the device itself but the access to it, right? So you have to consider the network in between. Now, the other side of the world is the array side of the world, again, which you guys know very well uh, and, and I do also. Uh, and the, the figures per device tend to be much more conservative if they're going through array controllers and then from the controller through a fabric like Fiber Channel or even SAS Fabric, for example, because now I've got this relatively complicated protocol. Uh, call it SCSI if you like, but uh, you guys know the story on that. All these storage protocols are relatively complicated, so it tends to slow down the inherent speed of something like, for example, a PCIe-based SSD, because I've got all this protocol in between. So it is not outside you know, the ordinary to be very conservative with real end users running real workloads, like you said, uh, about the IOPS per device when it's inside an array and what you should design uh, toward. Because, again, these arrays typically are shared storage, whereas a device inside a given server may or may not be shared. So, again, you may get to utilize far more capability of the device itself if you're in a non-shared environment and then relying on software to do the sharing, and then, of course, the network in between, usually Ethernet, sometimes InfiniBand as well, uh, to do that. So, no, I don't, th I don't think you're missing anything, but it's just kind of the inherent differences. If you consider the end-to-end -end path about, hey, I'm an application, and I make a read request, you know, down to the operating system or the hypervisor, you know, what happens next? So kind of trace that request. Uh, through the hierarchy, both of software and hardware, uh, and the levels you have to traverse and the protocols you have to enable uh, to get these messages back and forth. And you'll soon see that your, you know, 2,500, 3,500, whatever uh, IOPS per SSD instead of 60,000 starts to make a lot more sense uh, because now I've got, you know, it's, it's a more complicated scheme. Uh, to get data in and out of an SSD from an array than it is to get data in and out of an SSD if it's sitting directly in a server. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I pr appreciate uh, you clarifying that. So um, you now I know. So, uh, you know, we, we've kind of, we're, we're bumping up on time here. Yep. Um, and we didn't want to miss out on this opportunity. Um, so we, we saw a note recently that uh, Western Digital, which is, you said they're the big boys in spinning media, <laughs> Right, um, one of two, yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, they bought SanDisk for $19 billion. It's uh, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Um, I could right. think of some better ways to spend my money. But, um, you know, <laughs> what? You know, you guys are sitting in a seat where you have a, you're pretty privy to what, what this means. Why do you think they, they made that choice? Well, I'll tell you what, Brian. It's a, it, number one, it's a great question, and I, I won't even pretend to speak for Western Digital. Uh, and their rationale behind the, you know, the announcement of the acquisition. Uh, but, it, you know, on some levels, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, and I'm speaking as an individual now, not with my Micron hat on, uh, but just kind of observing this from the outside, as, as do you guys. Uh, so, you know, Western Digital, again, long heritage and rotating drives. Uh, they have several, you know, they, they've made several acquisitions over the years, HGST, uh, for example, uh, one of the more, you know, the more well-known ones, uh, and they're doing quite well in that business as well. They're, they're uh, you know, a very worthy entrant 
uh, into the market, both for uh, SSDs and rotating as well. Uh, but they really didn't have, number one, a, a fabrication you know, facility that made NAND. Now, one of the things that SanDisk has, uh, and again, not speaking for Micron, just speaking as an individual, is that they have a joint relationship with Toshiba. Uh, and Toshiba is, of course, one of the four NAND manufacturers uh, on the planet. So now, if you, you know, put, connect those two dots, uh, if you're Western Digital and you want a guaranteed supply of NAND uh, for your devices from HGST, uh, because HGST doesn't make NAND, they have to buy it from somewhere, and there's only four places to go. So maybe they wanted a guaranteed supply of NAND with the Toshiba relationship with SanDisk. Uh, maybe they wanted access to certain intellectual property that SanDisk have. I mean, they have a patent portfolio, as do we. Uh, I think our patent portfolio at Micron is number one in the world for lots of different classes of technology, but uh, I'm biased. Uh, but uh, the, it could have been an IP buy. It could have been a, a buy to guarantee supply of flash. Uh, it could have been a buy to uh, have different forms uh, of SSDs that HGST doesn't make. You know, HGST well-known in the enterprise. SanDisk argu arguably more well-known in the consumer spaces. Uh, than in the enterprise. So, again, on some levels, it, it makes sense. Uh, I'm not even qualified to comment on the on the purchase price. I mean, nineteen billion dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't even worry about the purchase price. Even yeah, even right. at ten billion or five, I'd be wondering, you know, what their thought process was. Uh, one thing that's interesting that you mentioned. So you're you're making a tie here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to you on this because um, again, you said Toshiba doesn't do DRAM. Uh, and one thing I do know about SanDisk from their legacy is that they also have the bones or scraps of uh, Fusion I.O., I believe. Right. Um, and so, right. you know, they have this kind of PCIe SSD story. Um, they have, of course, you know, if you want a, a flash drive for whatever your camera is that you might be using, um, things like that. They have a bunch of that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. They obviously, with Toshiba, are getting SSDs. Um, and they may even be getting PCIe SSDs. But it seems like maybe they might be short on either when you get into things like NVDIM or any of the DRAM-based stuff as you go further up the stack. And as, right. The, right. as the application stack evolves and the data center evolves, uh, are they missing a position there? And does that mean another acquisition might need to be in their future? Well, that, that, you, that could very well be. I mean, it's speculation, but uh, I think it's, it's interesting speculation. And who knows if they're going to go after you know a company that, that either gets them a guaranteed supply of DRAM or products, you know, made from DRAM like DIMMs. But again, there are other forms of DRAM. Uh, I mean, there is, you know, DRAM used in graphics. So GDDR, things like that. Micron manufactures a lot of that as well. So it's hard to tell, you know, I think uh, the, the strategy behind that. But it is becoming clear. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I joined Micron is that it is becoming pretty clear, at least in the memory technologies that the more vertically integrated you are, actually you're in a better position. Uh, and again, my, just my personal opinion, not speaking for Micron, but, but uh, you know, being vertically integrated, making our own DRAM, making our own NAND, and then we have the relative luxury of making products out of those technologies like DIMMs, like SSDs, like flash modules. And then of course we can sell those products out to the OEMs, out to the end user market, out to the enterprise, uh, in addition to selling component level DRAM and NAND, which we do a lot of business in. 
So I, I think we have a pretty good position, and maybe some other companies are trying to put together an acquisition portfolio uh, that resembles that, you know, given a strategic intent uh, to go into that space. And, and who knows? Again, I don't speak for Western Digital. They may never enter the DRAM volatile memory space. Uh, again, there are only three companies on the planet uh, that actually manufacture DRAM, uh, and Toshiba is not one of them. So. Uh, who knows what the future holds, but uh, I kind of like uh, where we are, uh, at least with our position at Micron. So I promise this is the last question, other than okay. asking you a couple of, uh, <laughs> of non-important ones. Uh, so the when you talked about HGST, uh, HGST again, the first thing that came to mind is, you know, six terabyte and like 10 terabyte helium yep. spinning right. disk. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, you've, you've made comments about, you know, storage is still a problem. We'll stop buying problematic storage. We saw that on right. Twitter. Right. Um, you exactly. know, you kind of talk about vertical integration, and frankly, your your last seat ten months ago uh, was in a was in a business that really heavily relied on those super large spinning discs. Correct. Um, right. What what spinning discs life like? Uh, one year, three year, five year, maybe whatever else you think. Sure. Great question. Um, I have begun to tell people, and again, the, the, the key technology difference here, Brian, is the advent of 3D NAND, which will enable the advent of very dense SSDs. So keep that in your back pocket. And then consider, again, uh, Western uh, through their HDST subsidiary, as well as Seagate, uh, although Seagate was later to the Helium party than uh, HDST was. Yeah, they've been doing 6.8, now 10 terabyte, 7,200 RPM spinners. Uh, full of helium shingled magnetic recording as well, uh, which is a really interesting thing on one hand, but on the other hand, it's it's kind of almost, and I'll be gentle here, uh, it's something they had to do to get to these higher densities because quite literally, how many platters can you put in a three and a half inch form factor disc enclosure? Uh, that's why they had to go to helium because they couldn't put the next platter in and spin it in air and make it work. So it's it's an interesting dilemma, I would think, uh, for the hard drive manufacturers. And I have told people this uh, only half in jest, but it is not the end of the rotating drive. But I think we are now seeing the beginning of the end of the rotating drive, at least for certain workloads that traditionally we thought, hey, I'll just go out and buy a bunch of spinners and, and we'll run this and we'll, you know, short stroke them and use wide striping and do all that and try to make it work. Well, again, if you think of the advent of 3D NAND and very dense SSDs, you, you said it yourself, you saw uh, uh, an SSD vendor out there uh, touting a 16 terabyte, two and a half inch drive. Uh, compare that, by the way, to the largest two and a half inch rotating drive that you can get. To my knowledge, that's 1.8 terabytes. I don't think, the, I'm, I'm not aware of anything denser than that, at least in a two and a half inch form factor. Three and a half, sure. They got, you know, six, eight, and 10. But two and a halves are where the game is at for SSDs. I haven't even begun to talk about the existence of a three and a half inch SSD, which certainly is theoretically possible. Nobody's uh, making those right now. But imagine the densities you could put in a three and a half inch case uh, with very dense NAND. So anyway, uh, so I think it's the beginning of the end. Uh, the hard drive has been around, Brian, literally for 60 years uh, since the advent of the IBM Ramac in 1956. Uh, and it may not be around another 60 years uh, because I think we are seeing the beginning of the end. And you can look at all the research stats 
you like on the sale of our HDDs. Um, they are starting to decline. There's just no question about it. Uh, and slowly over time, I think they will be more and more amenable to both server and array designs, you know, using more flash or potentially all flash. And we already see many examples of all flash today. Uh, you mentioned it right at the top of the podcast, the all flash data center. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, this is the, the slow evolution of storage technology. You know, many people predicted tape was dead. Uh, it, it actually is not, but it's retreated into a, you know, a relatively small corner uh, of the market, that being deep archive. So uh, maybe hard, hard drives are headed there too. I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is that we have now passed the density uh, threshold where a dense flash device uh, is significantly more dense in a, in a given footprint uh, than a rotating device really ever could be, even if you look at things like heat-assisted magnetic recording, hammer, and all that. Uh, I think the advances in NAND, and especially 3D NAND, uh, are going to make uh, you know SSDs be the dense material of choice for years to come. So Brian promised one more question, and I think that was for him because I have another question. Okay. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I have to. I have to know. Um, so... You know, we, we at EMC, we talk about EMLC or enterprise class, you know, flash sure. drives versus consumer grade. Right. We hear about these 16 terabyte and potentially larger in the future drives. Um, you know, what are the what are the real differences between an enterprise class and a consumer grade? And then are sure. there are there Achilles heels to these things? Like what's the mean time between failure? You know, we all know that you can only write to a cell a finite number of times. So, right. Right. You know, what are we talking about here? Where's this kind of sure. inflection point between size and density and um, reliability and these types of things? Absolutely. So those, those are all classic engineering trade-offs. You, you hit it right in the head, Brent, uh, with those. And, and so there, there are, it's, it's really kind of a multivariate problem, right? Because I've talked to a lot of people and said, okay, you know, hey, in theory, we could build a 16-terabyte device or a 24-terabyte device. Now, if you assume the existence of that, what kind of interface do you think is appropriate? Should I make it a SAS drive, uh, which other companies are doing? Should I put that much NAND behind a SATA interface, or should I just say, hey, everything from here on out is PCI Express, uh, maybe NVMe transport, and the real deep stuff will just sit on a PCIe bus uh, inside a server or inside an array controller. Uh, and so there are architectural trade-offs for that. There are some people who are scared to death of a very dense NAND device sitting on a serial ATA bus, right, limited to six gigabits a second, uh, and it's not going to go any faster. This is the, the proverbial, you know, drinking... Uh, the, the ocean through a straw, right? Which the, the dense rotating drives are kind of in the same boat, right? I got a SATA interface and I got 10 terabytes of spinner behind it. Uh, it's going to take me a long time to read and write that device. So how much is good? So anyway, so there's that. And then the other thing you mentioned is reliability. Uh, and yes, NAND is a device which can wear out and does wear out over time, given a sufficient amount of rights. But here's one of the things that I think is interesting now, as opposed to, say, back in 2008, when we started to use flash-based you know, NAND SSDs and arrays. Uh, and the Symmetrics happened to be the very first instance of this. 
So we were taught, you know, back then to be very careful about wearing out your NAN, uh, worrying about things like write amplification and garbage collection, which we still worry about, by the way. Uh, but when the devices were relatively small, you know, 100 gigabytes, for example, uh, writing just one terabyte to it every day meant that I filled that thing 10 times, right, 10 times over every single day. Uh, and, to, and, you know, literally still today we quote uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, write reliability in terms of drive fills per day or drive writes per day. Now, I prefer lifetime fill as a metric. So I want to know how many petabytes can I write to this thing before it eventually, you know, goes into read-only state. And by the way, they don't die. They just go into read-only state. You can't write them anymore, but you can still read them. So that's a difference, too. <clears throat> but uh, in terms of reliability, uh, SLC has the most, uh, you know, program erase cycles of any technology, uh, you know, on the order of 100,000. Uh, uh, MLC has on the order anywhere from 10 to 30,000. That's a very typical figure. Again, this is per cell. Now, the interesting thing is that TLC has a much less or much reduced program erase cycle count per cell because of the three bits per cell. So you might get, you know, several thousand program erase cycles per cell. But guess what? The drives are dense enough that I've got, you know, one, two, four terabytes of these cells, which are holding individual bytes of data so uh, you know you still might see a one fill a day drive so I could write you know one fill a day at a four terabyte drive and do that and have the manufacturer guarantee it for five years uh, without even getting close to wearing it out so the moral of the story is this that wear out yes it's still a concern this is still NAND after all uh, electron leakage happens uh, but uh, the, our concerns about wear out are far far less really because the drives are getting so much denser that our ability to fill them, and this is write activity, reads really don't matter, writes matter, um, has led to you know, far greater reliability on these drives. And here's an example. So you might you know, go out and read the literature on rotating drives. Uh, a drive failure rate, annualized failure rate, AFR for short, might be 1%. So one drive out of every hundred. That's actually considered a pretty decent figure uh, in the rotating world. If you can get it under one, that's great. Uh, but there's lots of you know research and literature out there which shows AFRs you know of four, five, six, even ten uh, as the years go by. The classic Weibull distribution. So with flash drives, on the other hand, you don't get that kind of distribution. And what we're seeing with today's flash drives, again as opposed to the flash drives of, of seven or eight years ago. Uh, is that, you know, AFRs of 0.2, so 0 0.2, 0 0.3, very common. Translated, they're four to five times more reliable than a hard drive in operational use. So it's, it's really, if, if you believe that, you know, hard drives are more reliable than flash drives, that's, that's actually an urban legend. It's not true. At least today it's not. Ten years ago, maybe so, but not today. So we like the reliability of the drives and actually with 3d NAND the reliability can actually go up it gets better uh, because I've got so many more cells I can do so many more things uh, with the 3d topology I can lay out the the blocks of data in different configurations uh, given the you know the Z dimension now uh, in the 3d NAND so uh, yeah we see reliability is getting better uh, as opposed to the hard drive vendors, which, you know, they struggle with this again, and they're going to different techniques such as filling with helium and doing shingled magnetic recording. 
but they're they're fighting against the basic, you know, fundamental thing that how many platters can you cram into this mechanical case uh, and spin them at a certain rate. Uh, and with Flash, there is no such thing. Of course, they don't rotate at all. Uh, and now, really, the the uh, the effort becomes how reliable can you make, <coughs> excuse me, the device itself with your controller, with your firmware, uh, and uh, you know, get down to the very very low levels. Uh, like we're seeing today, you know, again, 0.2, of annualized failure rate. That's pretty awesome. And I, of course, says the guy who doesn't have any spinning discs in his portfolio, but, you know. Uh, you <laughs> so, uh, Rob, uh, thanks again for all your passion. Uh, it's, uh, of course, it's almost, uh, how do I, it's addicting to listen to you talk. Um, so well, we're, we've, we've more than run out of time because Brent asked that one extra question. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... We typically like to talk about, you know, when and where can people find you next? So over the next couple of months, are you doing any public forum type presenting or speaking uh, at any events? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny you asked at this point in time. So December and January are, are kind of slow, uh, but here's two things for you. And uh, so number one on social media, uh, which you guys do very, very well uh, on Twitter, I am at Pegler R, so P-E-G-L-A-R-R. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, on LinkedIn quite a bit too, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look for my name. Uh, but uh, for speaking events, so uh, one thing, which is actually a closed event, uh, I'm going to New York City, uh, not next week, but the week after, and speak at the Argyle CIO event. I did a similar event in San Francisco a few weeks ago. It was very good. Uh, but then the kind of next public one, there's a, there's a, uh, excuse me, a conference. Uh, in Vegas, uh, that is actually just before the CES show, which is huge, as you guys know, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show starts in Vegas. So there's a storage show, Creative Storage Conference, uh, that goes on, I think it's like the 4th and 5th of January. It's slightly after New Year's, uh, just before CES starts. I'm going to be there. Uh, I'll be doing a keynote uh, at, that, at that conference. So again, that's kind of the next uh, thing up on the docket. And again, that's just a few weeks away. Uh, early January. Uh, and then once you get into March and April, you get now back kind of on the cycle uh, of some of the industry shows. Uh, so March, April, May turn out to be, uh, you know, heavier months uh, for those type of things than, uh, than either the summer or right around the holidays are. But uh, hopefully that gives you a little flavor. I, I typically might do, uh, you know, two or three speaking engagements like that uh, a month. I just did one on, on behalf of the Gartner uh, organization down in Florida at Disney World. Uh, lots of people attended that. So, yep, I uh, I speak frequently, as you well know. Yep. So the the event in January, you're allowed to say what it is. Yeah, that's called the Creative Storage Conference. Okay, you did say uh, that. Okay. I, yeah. I'd never yeah. heard of it, so I apologize. It's actually no, no worries at all. It it actually started out relatively small, kind of a media and entertainment focused uh, conference, but now it's expanded out, uh, and I'm talking about the future of NAND. Uh, and other topics in my keynote, which is going to be interesting. But uh, this is run by a guy named Tom Coughlin, uh, who, by the way, is the, uh, the lead dog uh, for the Flash Memory Summit, uh, which is becoming a very large show now. And I'm an advisor to that show. We, uh, we had over 5,000 people uh, at that show in Santa Clara uh, last August. Uh, and, and 10 years ago, that show started with maybe 100 engineers. That's that was a- it. And we've grown it to over 5,000. 5,000 is a pretty awesome turnout. So... Um, you know, we're going to Rob again, we can't thank you enough for being here. Um, 
you know, anybody who wants to get a hold of him again, he holler, holler at him on Twitter. Um, and uh, again, listeners, you also can holler at us on Twitter. So uh, get social with us. Uh, Facebook. Uh, well, no, don't Facebook us. That's gross. Um, so Twitter, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, email, whatever it is, uh, you know, call us, whatever it is, just not Facebook. And uh, let's get some feedback. And we really appreciate it. And we are listening. We've been trying to get people on and change things as you've asked for it. So thanks again for all your time. Uh, on behalf of the Hot Owl, this is Brian Carpenter. This is Brent Piotti. And Rob, thanks again. You bet. No, pleasure to be on, guys. Thank you.